0: Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Deputy Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. This is the first part of a four-part limited series that we're doing focused just on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Avengers Endgame is set to arrive on April 26th, so we thought it would be a good idea to have multiple podcasts where we just focus on the Marvel movies that have led up to it. And that way, us talking about it can sort of help get you back in the spirit for Endgame. And also, we're going to talk about the development of these movies, because the funny thing is, it's like we reported on these movies as they were happening. Uh, So we can tell you sort of, you know, tracking that reporting, how these films developed. And we're going to talk about not just the films themselves in terms of their story and their development, but also their impact and how they the perspective of them has changed over time and how we feel about them now uh, compared to when they were released. And so I think with that, the way we're going to split this up is so today's episode will be focusing on Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, The First Avenger, and The Avengers. That'll be our episode
1: today. That would be Marvel's The Avengers, Matt. I am never going to call it that. <laughs> Lest it be mistaken for the uh, Uma Thurman uh, Refines movie. That that blockbuster sensation. <laughs> Which, to be honest, when John Favreau was doing press for Iron Man and said someone teased like, "Oh, is this building to the Avengers?" I was like, "The Uma Thurman Refines movie? What does that have to do with these?" <laughs> that was my reaction. So that's where my headspace was at in 2008.
0: So uh, let's let's kick things off. Let's talk about Iron Man. And I think Iron Man's interesting because it came out in the summer of 2008. And also in the t- summer of 2008 was another big superhero film, The Dark Knight. And at the time, it's like, oh, everyone's like, oh, movies will be like The Dark Knight now. Because like, The Dark <laughs> Knight was the bigger hit. And people were just blown away by it. And I think in the short term, yes, The Dark Knight had a very strong, gritty aspect that other films sought to emulate. But it was really Iron Man. And that sort of melding of unabashedly comic book with humor and an eye on the long game, that is sort of what has set the tone, really, for superhero cinema uh, over the years. And that's not to say that everyone has tried to be Iron Man, but I think the impact of Iron Man has been much longer lasting. And that's even more surprising when you know that Iron Man didn't have a script. Yes.
1: Yeah, that was. I mean, putting myself back in my head and head, that headspace again. The Dark Knight made about double what Iron Man made, and I loved Iron Man when it came out. But it very much the uh, the prevailing opinion was that like The Dark Knight was the important film and like setting the standard for the future of superhero movies. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine uh, at that point in that year that Iron Man would be the more influential of the two.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's hard to sort of. You know, there were, I think someone referred to Dark Knight as like a cinematic revolution. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> in the short term. But like, that's the thing. You don't know how much things are going to change. And really, it, it was Iron Man that changed things. And it was kind of... Iron Man is a surprising film for a lot of reasons. Not just because it had no script, but Robert Downey Jr. was very much on the rebound at the time. He was not like an A-list star. Those days had, had had left him because of all his drug problems and him going to prison. And he had slowly started to claw his way out um, with like kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And the studio would not – didn't want to take a chance on Iron Man. First off, they had to do Iron Man because they had sold their big properties like X-Men and Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. Those had been sold off. Um the the rights to other studios. So Iron Man was not like a marquee character, but he was sort of like a B level character. Like, all right, well we have this guy, Iron Man. And they went with him because his toys would sell. Like it he was a it was a popular way like if you were gonna sell a character, this is a character that would sell toys. And yet they were downy, they were like, we don't know, we don't want to insure him. What if he get you know, what if he gets you know falls off the wagon? This is a big risk. And John Favreau cleverly kind of sneaked out the information of like, what about Robert Downey Jr.? Like he floated a test balloon among fans and the fans loved the idea. And that kind of got Downey in the door.
1: Yeah, uh, I was a huge fan of Robert Downey Jr. at the time uh, to the point that I, I paid to see Gothica um, because Robert Downey Jr. was in it. I think Gothica, right? Um the Halle Berry I mean, I haven't seen
0: Gothica. I know of its existence.
1: (laughs) Are we not going to discuss Gothica at this point? (laughs) I don't think we should ever have to discuss Gothica. Horror movie. Um, So, yeah, that was, I mean, that was a huge draw for me. Um, And, uh, you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang really is the film that kind of got him back on the path towards getting his career together again. And uh, he said the film doesn't have a script. I mean, the script is credited to Mark Fergus, Ottsby, Art Markham, and Matt Holloway. But Downey and Favreau kind of threw it out. They were kind of improvising the lines on the day and writing the pages. And apparently Shane Black was a very intense consultant on the film. They would call him at night and run pages by him, run dialogue by him, and, and he would kind of uh, help out. So... Um, when we talk about Iron Man 3, uh, that was Robert Downey Jr. returning the favor to Shane Black, um, who kind of helped get his career back together and also helped make Iron Man what it was, which is this kind of crazy balance of humor and action and superheroics that are kind of science and tech based, which was a little new to the genre at the time. I mean, the superhero genre at this point was still kind of in flux. Batman Begins was a few years earlier and it was a hit, but it was not like this overwhelming blockbuster hit. Like I loved it. Um, it made money, but the Batman franchise was still had a little stink on it from uh, Batman and Robin at that time. Um, so like there was no kind of set standard for what a superhero movie was would be, let alone what a Marvel movie would be and i think that kind of blend of that humor um uh with uh this kind of filmmaking was uh kind of the secret formula for Marvel, for iron man
0: yeah i mean definitely leaning into the humor and making it poppy making it and and sort of current. I mean, one of the appealing aspects of of Marvel of the Marvel Universe is that it's supposed to take place in our world. So, when Iron Man opens and they're telling you who is like I mean, there's the the attack on the convoy, which, you know, the immediately, you know, reminds you that oh yeah, America's fighting wars right now. Uh and then you cut back to the award ceremony and then it's like Tony Stark on the cover of like real magazines that you would recognize. Like these are like, this is very much a world that exists in one we can recognize Uh, close. The closest we had ever really got into that was Spider-Man. But at that point, Spider-Man was very much in the hands of, of Sam Raimi who, you know, the films take place in a clearly in New York, but it's that very much that four color, you know, old school comic New York. Um, and Raimi's vision is so distinctive that it's a little difficult to emulate it. And so Iron Man is sort of off, uh, and it's grounded, but sort of with a just enough heightened reality to let you enjoy the superheroics of it.
1: And it's also not trying too hard to be cool; it just is cool, which I think is is part of a secret. I mean, you think of the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie and the uh, the action sequences set to Evanescence and stuff like that. Uh, just that that was kind of where we were at at this point in time. Well, and I think
0: another important thing to remember is something that, like, in the lead up to Daredevil. Um, something that was used as a selling point. It's like Mark Steven Johnson, who is the, the writer-director, he's like, he's such a big comics fan. He's such a fan of Daredevil. He's such a fan. He's, a, he's one of us. And that does not fucking matter <laughs> at all. Uh, what matters is, can you make a movie? And Jon Favreau knew how to do that. He's a very good journeyman director. And so he had proved himself like Elf had become like a comedy hit. But he had also shown like, even though Zathura wasn't as big a hit as Elf, it's like i can do special effects i can do action i can carry i can still make you care about characters while giving you you know fun set pieces and so he had proven himself in that way even though iron man was sort of his biggest movie to date
1: yeah and it it all i mean again the the grounded aspect of it and and the fact that it feels like it's taking place in in the real world um i think that's a good point to make because especially i mean it opens in afghanistan And Tony puts on the suit of armor and there's an action set piece set uh, in another war-torn Middle Eastern country um, in the middle of the film, I think, or towards the end. Uh, So it's kind of like what would actually happen if this person became a superhero? Where would they go to fight crime and where would they go to um, uh, kind of fight terror and stuff like that? Um, It does start to kind of lay the groundwork for like the Mandarin and the Ten Rings and stuff, but that kind of falls away later.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a film that doesn't want to overreach. Like, it's enough to, like, it's It's kind of, it's content to leave little breadcrumbs. But for the most part, it's like, we need this character to work. All our chips are on this guy and audiences need to be on board with him. And the fact that you are and you do care about what happens to Iron Man and, like, the fact that he is a different kind of superhero. I mean, like, as you mentioned, him going to Afghanistan, superheroes didn't do that until then. Super, yeah. if there was a crime fighter. The crime fighter fought in the city. Those are the rules. But Iron Man doesn't go out and, like, bust drug dealers. Like, he goes to war-torn countries and tries to make up for what he feels the wrongs he has done, which is that by selling weapons, he has only ended up empowering the enemies. And so he's trying to destroy the weapons that have fallen into the wrong hands. He's basically trying to take responsibility for the wrongs he has done individually, uh, which is a superhero trope. You know, I, I, the superhero feels guilt, but usually that guilt comes from, is it's on a smaller scale. Like, Ooh, my uncle Ben died. Cause I didn't stop the robber. Like it's a, it's a very personal thing. Whereas Tony Stark's sins are kind
1: of on a global scale. Well, and it is a film that has more on its mind. I mean, t- Tony Stark is a defense contractor and it's him considering his role in terrorism, like if his weapons are being used to enact terror, does that not also make him culpable? And so once he has that firsthand experience, um, when he's captured in the cave, uh, he comes to the realization that he doesn't want to be making weapons anymore. And then I like that idea and that idea of the villain, uh, which is Obadiah Stane wants to continue selling weapons to bad people because it makes a lot of money. And on my most recent rewatch of the film I was really struck by uh obadiah stain and Jeff Bridges' performance. I think it's kind of underrated, but it's it's really good. I oh, really like Really really good. We forget him a lot because he never came back and he's not like a major player in the MCU or anything anymore. Um but it's a super effective villain role. Especially because, I mean, it's that trope, with that Marvel, you'll, we'll see it a lot, uh, as we're covering the series where the mentor is actually the bad guy. Um, but I don't know, there's something special about this one. And I think it's that Jeff Bridges special sauce.
0: I definitely think Jeff Bridges helps set the tone for the villains that like, you need to get real actors for the villains. And then it's a question of, will the, the Marvel movie live up to the talent that they have? Cause yeah. at that point, I mean, that's the other thing, like, you know, Iron Man is a film like Downey is the risk, but everyone else is either an os like of the main characters is either an Oscar nominee or an Oscar winner at this point. Uh, Jeff Bridges, he I don't think he had, he had, had he won for Crazy Heart yet. I don't know if, if I don't had.
1: think he had won yet.
0: He hadn't uh, won yet, but I think he was a nominee. He had been Oscar nominated. Yeah, um, Gwyneth Paltrow had won an Oscar. And Terrence Howard had been nominated for an Oscar for Hustle and Flow. In fact, Terrence Howard was the first person cast in Iron Man,
1: <laughs> which um, is so funny thinking about it now.
0: Well, and I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I can go on record saying I know why he wasn't, why he wasn't brought back, and it's not really his fault, <laughs> um, but it didn't work out for him.
1: <laughs> no it did not
0: um but yeah i definitely think just iron man works and but like that cast of like these are respected actors rather than like who's the hot new young thing that'll get all the kids to come do our movie like it was like who can who is respected and i mean to be fair downey he was the risk but downey is also an oscar-nominated actor and he was before you know he had his breakout 2008 with uh this and tropic thunder
1: and Gwyneth Paltrow is an Oscar winner, so I, yeah, like Marvel right. was setting the stage early.
0: Yeah, so um, it's it definitely is like no, we we are we're investing in acting talent, um, and it's not like Iron Man is like the biggest spectacle because I mean at, even at the end of the day, it still had a budget
1: and it was there's like no, I remember that and I remember realizing so when this movie came out, uh, like. I was still in college and me and all my friends were all kind of like, eh, I don't know, like Iron Man looks kind of dumb. We saw it. We were blown away. I saw it three times in theaters. But I also like would recognize like there's not a lot of action in this movie. But I also really love it. Uh, and it's because of Downey and it's because of Jeff Bridges and it's because of all that interplay among the characters.
0: Yeah. No, it's a really strong start less strong of a start is is incredible hulk which is a retrofitted MCU movie is it retrofitted yeah there's nothing in there there's nothing in that movie all everything that connects to the MCU has been added later and you can tell like there's a shot, like everything that has like stark industries in it is like second unit and it's clear like the downey stuff with like in the end credit scene was shot like like a month before like it's very clear that Incredible Hulk was just its own attempt, like because it's first off, it's it's the only one that isn't owned. Like at, at the time, the movies are being distributed by Paramount. Uh, yeah. Paramount's the distributor, except for Incredible Hulk, which is Universal. Universal owns the rights to Hulk. And second, Incredible Hulk is really meant to sort of be a course correction for um, Ann Lee's Ang, Hulk, Ang- <laughs>
1: Lee's Hulk, yeah. which
0: is a weird movie. <laughs> I, l- I like Ang Lee's Hulk. It's such a weird fucking film. <laughs>
1: it's super weird. But, um, like it.
0: but Incredible Hulk is just, it's bland. Like, it's been retrofitted so that it could be part of the MCU if, if things work out. But on its own merits, I don't think it's like the worst film, but it's very ho-hum and forgettable, which is kind of what you would expect from a Louis Leterrier movie. Um, it's just, like, his... The problem with with Hulk as a character, as a leading character, is that normally in a superhero film, it's all about like, oh, I'm a normal guy. I got powers. I have to learn how to use my powers responsibly to help people. Hulk is all about a guy who doesn't want to have superpowers. He hates (laughs) having superpowers. He doesn't want to turn into the Hulk. And that makes for a really frustrating film when your main character is like, I don't like everyone's like, you should be the Hulk. And he's like, I don't want to be the Hulk. You should be the Hulk. I don't want to be the Hulk. And then he gets angry and he becomes the Hulk. And then like you have your action scene and it just makes for this very weird give and take of, you know, what the audience wants and what's the protagonist wants are at very different. uh Are there at cross purposes?
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's uh I I didn't even see it when it came out. Um And it did. I, it took me a long time actually to see it, because I just didn't care. Because I, I don't think it was necessarily retrofitted to MCU. It was still developed by Marvel Studios, but they didn't really know what they were making yet. Like, the the tag for Iron Man with Nick Fury was shot uh, months after they had wrapped shooting on that film, I think. Um, so they, they weren't necessarily creating an interconnected universe. But I agree with you. I think Hulk is a really hard character to adapt, and the Incredible Hulk just doesn't – it's just boring. It's just boring. I mean, it doesn't also, it's also just not really a film that's about anything. Like it doesn't,
0: it's trying to just make basically Angley made a really inaccessible Hulk film. Like it's all about Freudian daddy issues. Like it's very much like the anti summer blockbuster in a way. Um, And then, so Hulk is like, let's just make a populist Hulk for the masses where, you know, our big guy is going to fight your big guy and they're going to smash up Harlem and, That'll be our movie, and it's just like I guess, like and Edward Norton is okay, but he doesn't you don't really care about him as Bruce Banner that much. he's just it's always comes back to the t v show he's like he's the man on the run, and I'm like, i guess like, <laughs> right. that's but that's boring it's not he's a man on the run but he's not running towards anything that's the pro like he's yeah. like he's trying to avoid capture which like if you're making the fugitive as a tv show like okay fine but like the fugitive the movie understood like we can't just have him running away from cops he actually has to be like trying to solve the mystery like yeah. our character has to do something and like i don't know what hulk wants in this movie other than to no. be left alone and to control his heart rate
1: <laughs> yes so as not to have sex um it is funny that the, I mean, it, Edward Norton was obviously recast, but William Hurt was brought back. So technically, in the MCU, Liv Tyler still exists as that, as that character. Yes, technically. But there, there was also a, a lot of press surrounding the movie because Edward Norton um, pulled in Edward Norton and <laughs> was rewriting the screenplay himself. Um, and, like, a lot of it went public. Like, there was uh, – it, it, it was, like, reportedly it was Edward Norton and, and the director, Louis Leterrier, on one side and then Marvel and the pro- producers on the other side. Uh, and I remember there were, like, um, like, public spats and stuff. And there was a story that, like, Norton was refusing to do publicity if he didn't get his cut. And this is the, the statement that Norton uh, released at the time. It said, our healthy process of collaboration, which is and should be a private matter, was misrepresented publicly as a dispute, seized on by people looking for a good story, and has been distorted to such a degree that it risks distracting from the film itself, which Marvel, Universal, and I refuse to let happen. It has always been my firm conviction that films should speak for themselves and that knowing too much about how they are made diminishes the magic of watching them. Um, And then he was fired. When the Avengers happened, <laughs> so, the way
0: the way I heard it was basically they invited him to come back, but on the very clear, like they may, they might wanted to make it crystal clear. It's like you can be still be Hulk, but if you come on board with this, this is Joss Whedon's vision. Like you have to adhere. Like the script is the script, and you've just got to kind of go along with it. And he was like, "Sure, but can I see the script? I might have some notes." And they were like, "Okay, we're done." <laughs> That's funny. That's the way I heard it. I don't know if that actually, that's what I heard back then. Sure.
1: Well, and not to begrudge Edward, I mean, at the time, like he was the biggest part of the incredible Hulk. Like why was he going to trust Kevin Feige? Like this guy had only produced like one, like iron, he had produced Iron Man, which had not come out by the time they were making the incredible Hulk. Um, I mean, Galen heard and Avi Arad were on it, but you know, who knows what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, And he's kind of a well-respected actor and he's a director in his own right. So I understand his, Want to be involved in the collaborative process, but when there's hundreds of millions of millions of dollars on the line, it becomes really messy really quickly.
0: Yeah. Um. So uh, it's just incredible. Hulk is now just this weird outlier for a lot of reasons.
1: Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't fit even if you remove the like a weirdly added like robert Downey jr cameo it still doesn't really fit within the mcu because it it feels i mean it's at least visually a little more interesting than what they're do what they what the other directors were doing in phase one um but still not um you know uh, extraordinary or anything but it, it just doesn't it, like you said it there's not really a point to it like what's what's going on here yeah. what are we doing um, and then you hit what I feel
0: is the nadir of the MCU thus far, which is Iron Man 2,
1: <laughs> which is
0: just Iron Man 2 is a, it's a rush to capital capitalize. It's a rushed sequel. It's a sequel where there's different plot lines competing, which is in terms of being an adaptation. And third, it's just, it rests on a lot of coincidences that don't, really serve the movie. Um, it's just, it's kind of a mess. It's a film that's like, at, by the time Iron Man 2 comes along, they know that they are working towards the Avengers. They're like, okay, this movie is coming. Uh, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. is a thing. Nick Fury is a thing. We're going to introduce Black Widow. Um, but we also have to tell an Iron Man story and like, what story are we going to tell? And it's clear that I think John Favreau wanted to tell Demon in a Bottle, but yeah. Marvel wanted to tell Armor Wars, which is, you know, different armors fighting against each other. Um, because toys because toys um, so you have this weird mishmash um, at one point Iron Man gets sidelined in his own movie and like supporting characters don't have time for him which is just a weird <laughs> place to put your hero like it's not like he like they put him in a timeout which is just he's like okay well I'm gonna steal this model of the World's Fair of like the Stark <laughs> Expo and it's gonna turn out like the the my dad invented happened to invent the one thing that can cure the thing that's happening to poison be poisoning me. Like it's so, <laughs> oh, too.
1: it's, uh, well, I mean, quite literally it was a rush. Uh, and I think, I mean, uh, people like to rag on DC and how they tried to rush their DC interconnected universe. um, But Iron Man 2 is very much Marvel's Batman v Superman. Like they they were just trying to do too much in one movie, and uh, like John Favreau was super nervous that it was going to be terrible because they were like and and it should be noted at this time. So the Marvel Studios of this era was not the Marvel Studios of now. Um, especially in terms of structure, Kevin Feige was the president, but Ike Perl, he still reported to Ike Perlmutter, who uh, was the CEO of Marvel Entertainment and uh, has no taste whatsoever and makes very bad decisions.
0: Who's a cheap um, asshole, and he thinks everything is about toys, and that he also thinks that women, girl, you know, you can't make a movie starring a woman because you know boys won't buy toys of girls. And I guess girls won't go to superhero movies, like just a ba- a lot of bad assumptions. And now he oversees the VA from Mar-a-Lago.
1: So that's his story. <laughs> that's what he's doing. Fuck. Uh, I'll say it. <laughs> that's fair. Hashtag. Um, and also Paramount was the distributor. So it, they weren't, you know, in the mix with Disney or anything like that. So the way that the Marvel movies were made at this time were a little different than the way that they're made to now. So, I'm trying to say, like, what I'm saying here about the bad development of Iron Man too. I'm not making a value judgment against Kevin Feige or saying, like, oh, he makes bad decisions. Um, although they did make a lot of bad decisions at this point, they were trying to rush it. And John Favreau apparently was so convinced that this movie is going to be terrible that he was rushing to get signed on to another project so that when this came out and was terrible, he would already be shooting something. And that something was, was, was Cowboys and it which did not pan out. <laughs> Which did not pan out. Um, but he thought it was his lifeboat. And on paper, it was. I mean, you had Ron Howard and Steven Spielberg producing. But that's for another podcast for another time. Um, Please don't but, make me rewatch Cowboys and Aliens. <laughs> oh, we're going to do it. No. Gonna, remember Olivia Wilde's in that movie? Oh, man. <laughs> remember Harrison Ford's in that movie? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, oh, and Paul Dano. Right? Maybe? yeah probably <laughs> uh <laughs> iron man 2 that's right um but uh so they were rushing and i think they were excited by the fan response to the first iron man and especially the nick fury tag and they were like okay we can make a, an, a like a cinematic universe of heroes and we can connect everything and we can get to the avengers that's what we're gonna do because at this point they were already actively developing the avengers uh, I think they had probably already signed Joss Whedon, uh, close to when this movie came out. I can't remember the dates exactly, but it was a rush job and it's very clearly a rush job. And Justin Thoreau is credited with the screenplay. Um, he had done Tropic Thunder with Downey. Uh, he wrote Tropic Thunder, um, and Downey was impressed with his work there, but I don't know how much of this is Justin Thoreau, how much of it is just like poor editing and poor like putting together, but it just doesn't really work.
0: No, it's 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 just kind of a mess. Um I feel like with like the thing with Iron Man two is that again, it's just it's too many stories that are working against each other, and they don't really like I don't know what Iron Man's arc really is in Iron Man two, other than he gets a slightly better suit of armor. Like that's kind of what he is in this movie. It's just he's the armor. Um and the movie flirts with interesting ideas, like what do you do if there's an actual Iron Man who can like you know, in Tony Stark's words, privatize world peace. What does that mean? Should that power be in his hands? But the film never really considers it. So it becomes working, it just becomes way too dispersed. So you have Tony Stark, who's like, he has his palladium poisoning. And then we haven't even gotten in all the whiplash bullshit yet. (laughs) And fucking Mickey Rourke being like, what about my bird? And like, like, oh my
1: God. It was a it's a classic case of like a, an actor winning an Oscar and they're like make him a villain like it's the Christoph Waltz syndrome but this was I mean Mickey didn't win he was he was neck and neck with Sean Penn for Best Actor that year um, between Milk and the Wrestler and so there was all this like juice behind Mickey Rourke and so on paper again brilliant decision add Mickey Rourke as the villain um, not so much in practice apparently he was kind of a nightmare
0: and he was like my character should be really obsessed with this bird. <laughs> And God bless Sam Rockwell for making it work. I mean, I got to say, for me, like, Iron Man 2 is kind of a misfire, but I love everything with Sam Rockwell in that movie. He's a lot kind of, of fun.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of why I don't hate it as much as other people do, because I think it's still watchable. Because I think uh, of Sam Rockwell, I think there are some solid Tony moments. Um, there's some solid Black Widow stuff. Uh, even Don Cheadle's introduction as uh, as Rhodey taking over for Terrence Howard, I think, is a lot of fun. Um, so, there's stuff in this movie that I don't despise. It just like, if you try and write the plot out on a piece of paper, it just makes no sense.
0: Yeah. It's the best you can say about
1: Iron Man 2 is not unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> it's not unwatchable. It's watchable. Yeah. There's some stuff in there that makes it somewhat interesting and fun. Yeah.
0: So. And Iron Man 2, the wheels are rolling. You know, you have Colson in there being like, I've got to go to New Mexico. And then like, whoa, what's in New Mexico? And then the stinger is that the, the hammer has been found there. And that leads us to Thor. Um, Thor. And Thor is... <sighs> I like Thor. I'll say it. You'll say it? <laughs> I like things about Thor. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a... Thor is kind of a weird movie when you think about it. First off, Thor is a very difficult character. And I think... Marvel deserves a lot of credit for being willing to tackle him as only their fourth film. Because when you look at it, like what is Thor? Oh, he's a Norse God space alien. Oh really? That's it. That's, that's all he is. (laughs) Like it's, it's kind of hard to explain a character who like travels via rainbow bridge and like he has a magic hammer and he comes from Asgard and like he has wings on his helmet like it's a it's a it's a tough character to to put together and i think marvel deserves credit for finding a way to be like how do we make this film even if that solution was okay here's Asgard see how unique and royal and regal it is. And, you know, Thor is a king, but he's not ready. He's a prince, but he's not ready to be king. And he's, he's too bellicose. And he's, you know, he's cocky and he's spoiling for a fight. And his brother, Loki, like there's all this royal intrigue. Great. Now we're going to send him to New Mexico and he's going to lose all his powers. <laughs> Wait, what? That's what? And that's the movie. He lo- like, he you get like this big action scene that doesn't look great. The film is very poorly shot. Um, I don't know. Yeah, these, these phase one movies are pretty cheap. Well, it's not just pretty cheap. I think I actually like the way First Avenger looks. Um, I would say more that the choices being made. I think Kenneth Brana, like, he's like, oh, I'm doing a comic book. Well, what's a comic book? Uh Dutch Angles. Like, that was his solution. This film is nothing but Dutch Angles. It's very <laughs> weird to look at. Um, and it's but like, I don't know. Like, Thor to me gets even if it doesn't work completely Thor gets the job done and it's not an easy job to do because you have to get the casting right and I think Chris Hemsworth was a hell of a find uh Tom Hiddleston hell of a find um though that those were big risks right there um bigger risks in casting than they had ever really done before in the in the yeah. Marvel cinematic universe and you had to nail those two roles and they absolutely did and then you have to explain who thor is and not make it stupid and i think they can they did a convincing like there are realm there are different realms and he's from a different realm and he's been sent to earth so he is kind of he's like a space alien but he's not like it's just roll with it and like like they're worship as gods because they're just technologically advanced so their technology seems like magic to us fine like there's enough explanation along the way for an audience that wouldn't necessarily readily accept who thor is as a character and i think it does the heavy lifting where it needs to be done so that the stuff that kind of falls flat, like the Thor Jane Foster relationship, like you can kind of take it or leave it.
1: Yeah. I like the, I actually like the structure of Thor. I like the idea that in order to introduce this, you know, Norse alien God to uh, audiences, you have not being cast out from Asgard and put on earth, stripped of his powers and stripped of his hammer. So you get to know him kind of not necessarily as a human first, but as someone stripped of all those things. And then you start to put the stuff back on and, and you kind of understand like, Oh, okay. Like I can buy him better now as this Norse God wheeling a hammer because I got to know him as the guy uh, in the denim who was smashing a mug on the floor of a diner.
0: Right. I mean, I think, Without question, Thor Ragnarok is a better movie than Thor on every level, but there's no way you could have ever done Thor Ragnarok first or that kind of movie. It would have been way too out there, way too confusing. Like it would have just been too big of a swing. Thor is kind of, you just have to be like, it's a fish out of water story. You know, he's, he's from Asgard. He's not from around here. He's got a magic hammer. He doesn't get along with his dad. His brother's kind of mischievous and evil. Like it's. You know, it it's a film where it it works where it has to, and I also think it it's definitely the first film where you feel very invested in the villain um, by because the one of the best things the script does is it makes Loki sympathetic. Um, he's just not a scheming evil guy. He is feels well. On the one hand, yes, he wants to rule Asgard and he schemes to do it. He also sort of has that hurt younger brother syndrome going on.
1: The I still contend like 21, 22 movies later, the revelatory fine of the entire Marvel Cin- Marvel Cinematic Universe for me is Tom Hiddleston. Uh, he blew me away in this movie. I uh, immediately was like, who is that guy? Uh, where's he been? because uh, the performance is so arresting. Um, and in many ways I think he's kind of the key to the that first phase or first two fa- first couple of phases of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or um, maybe not the key, but uh, a, a significant um, player, uh, and e- injecting that kind of pathos and empathy into the villain, I think, uh, was really smart. And and why it made him perfect to be the guy they're going up against in the Avengers.
0: Yeah, it's, he is the rare Marvel Cinematic Universe villain that you feel as well as well developed as the heroes. Yeah, Uh, most of them are pretty disposable, but Loki isn't. And I think part of that goes to the writing. And part of that is Tom Hiddleston's performance.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, But you're right. That was a that was a big risk in cast casting two unknowns in those two key roles, which I guess explains why they got someone of uh, Natalie Portman's um, caliber for the Jane Foster role, which is really a nothing part (laughs) it yeah. was for the, its an, its entire existence in the Marvel cinematic universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks for lending us your your acting
0: creed, your you know, your your prestige to the MCU, Natalie Portman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um so now now we I guess we can move on to Captain America the First Avenger, which was wild in the lead up to the casting of it because this yeah. was I mean, the names that got tossed around for this role uh uh John Krasinski Channing Tatum Jensen Ackles like every like white young actor from a certain age probably tested for this role and we would report on it and every week it would just kind of get like like every month or so it would be whittled down a little further a little further and I think the three finalists were Chris Evans Channing Tatum and Sebastian Stan and I was always kind of rooting for Evans, even though I knew a lot of people weren't because a lot of people only knew Chris Evans as Johnny storm and like the cocky guy from fantastic four. That doesn't sound right. And those people had not seen sunshine where he does play a very heroic commanding character. And I was like, I totally buy Chris Evans as captain America. Keep in mind at this point, Channing Tatum had not sort of had his sort of, he hadn't had his hits of like haywire, and um, 21 Jump Street, and like he hadn't really taken off with and, like Magic Mike. He was, yeah, he was doing... still step up Channing Tatum. Well, not just that, but like, and the movies he was doing were bad movies. Like, yeah, they, they like you would look at him like, what is the appeal of this guy? Like, I saw Stop Loss, why, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so uh, Chris Evans got the role, and again, when it comes to Marvel nailing casting, they, they get it right
1: um and so and they had to keep going back to him because he kept turning it down he didn't want to do it because you know uh it was a big commitment and also something we haven't talked about yet is these massive marvel contracts these nine
0: film contracts
1: yeah so sam jackson was signed they signed him to a nine film contract but it was a point of contention he had never seen something before in his life it was not normal like at most you would maybe sign a two or three picture contract which would lock you in for a trilogy um and so there was a there was a lot of hubbub surrounding Sam Jackson's deal at the time, uh, and he eventually did sign to it, uh, and I'm sure he made a ton of money off of it. And the other actors, I think, signed f- were they nine or six? Because I know that Evans, the the way that they got Evans was he agreed to a lower number than the others. They only signed him to either four or six, I think, while the others were either were at six or nine. Um, like in terms of like Chris Hemsworth and Robert Downey Jr. and and the other actors like that, and each individ- each cameo appearance would count as a contractual appearance. So um, that helped kind of uh, take care of that. Which we don't really talk about the contracts anymore because no one's really wanting out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe at this point. Um, but uh,
0: yeah, you know? <laughs> no, I'm I'm listening. I was just I was listening about the contracts and I was like, I can't. Yeah, no one wants
1: out. <laughs> yeah. So that that was a that was a pretty huge deal at the time, and they finally got they finally got him after he turned them down multiple times. But I was thinking about the first Avenger, and I really think it's the first film of Phase One where the Marvel Cinematic Universe is fully formed, because Iron Man definitely sets the stage, sets the foundation. But it's not all there yet. It's not what we would come to recognize as a Marvel movie yet. Uh, obviously, Incredible Hulk and Iron Man two have a lot of issues, and then Thor is a little shaggy. It's it's not um it's not kind of in lockstep yet. But going back and watching Captain America: The First Avenger, it feels like it could be a Phase three film in terms of um kind of the tightness and the cohesion of of everything that they're weaving into it, um with kind of the the Tesseract plot line and and dealing with these kind of um, sci-fi aspects but dealing with them in a way that feels very grounded and very techy but also alluding to a world larger than the one that they're in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I get a lot of I I every time a new Marvel movie comes out, I post my rankings of how I rank all of them and first Avenger is my number 1. And people are like, "How can that be your number 1? It's, it has third act problems, which no it doesn't." But um like I said, it's very tight. I think The reason for me it's, it's at the top is I think it is, if you look at all of these movies, these are all superhero movies. They're all, that's, that's the thing. That's what they all have in common. Um, and what I think, and they might, you know, flirt with different genres, but at the end of the day, they're about heroes. And I think what First Avenger does better than any other movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is it understands what heroism looks like and in a completely earnest and unabashed way, in a way that I feel is a very difficult lift in a post 9-11 world, Um, in a way that certainly they didn't know how to crack with Superman. Um, They're like, oh, you can't have a Boy Scout be a hero. He has to be dark. He has to be shaded. And Captain America kind of throws that to the wind and says, no, here's a guy who just wants to do good. And furthermore, not just wants to do good, but he does so in a way that isn't jingoistic, which was another very difficult thing to do with Captain America. How do you, the guy's name is Captain America. (laughs) How do you make that heroism universal? How do you just make him a good guy? And just with simple lines, like, I don't like bullies, like, And his willingness to fight for others and to throw himself on the grenade. This is just the most perfectly crafted introduction to a superhero, I think, in all of superhero cinema. I think it's just, it's up there with, you know, Superman and just, you will believe, like, the goodness of this character. Everything works. And I think by starting this story in the 1940s during World War II not only adds shading, but it allows the movie to just focus on Steve Rogers and who he is and what he's about. But Joe Johnson is so perfectly suited for this sort of old fashioned adventure story. He had kind of done yeah. it before with Hidalgo. Um and he's just really well and suited. Rocketeer. And the Rocketeer, yes. Like he's very there was there are journeyman directors that sometimes Marvel gets, and then sometimes they get the right guy for the for the the person who knows how to make that genre and era come alive. And I think they really did that with Captain America, the first Avenger and Joe Johnson. Um, I just think it works from start to finish.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely wrote the screenplay. They obviously went on to write the other crap Captain America movies, crapped in America. <laughs> How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> uh, well, one of them's crapped in America. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Stay tuned. That's your that's your little tease for a future episode. Um, Marcus Maffili wrote the Avengers: Infinity War and Avengers: Endgame, but. As part of Joss Whedon's deal to write and direct The Avengers, he also was allowed to rewrite the script for Captain America The First Avenger, do a polish on it, because that movie was about to go into – or hadn't yet gone into production when Joss Whedon signed to write The Avengers. So when Joss Whedon came into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, everything was already established except for Captain America, and so he could kind of get his hands on that. And I think you can feel a little bit of him in this movie. Oh, for Uh,
0: sure. Every line from Tommy Lee Jones' character is Whedon. Which, by the way,
1: let's pause to consider the fact that Tommy Lee Jones withstood a Marvel movie. Was in a Marvel movie. The and grumpiest
0: it. man alive.
1: Did not yell at anyone.
0: That, that we, we know don't. of. <laughs>
1: uh, this movie also has the Tooch,
0: Stanley Tucci. I love Tucci in this movie. He's such underrated. A, I mean, also, by this point, you can start seeing tropes emerge in Marvel movies, Um, some of them I think would eventually become more irritating than others, but I, you know, the notion of like the mentor who has to die so that the hero can step up and like, you know, like Anson and, um, uh, Stanley Tucci's character are very similar in the way that, the way that they're a part of, you know, the hero's life.
1: Yeah. Although, uh, Hugo Weaving apparently did not enjoy his time on this movie. No, he did not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think I think Red Skull is a cool villain. I think it's really interesting. I mean, the film uh, I, I love the parallels that the film makes. I mean, it it's set in World War Two and it's obviously dealing with Nazis, but Nazis are bullies and he's going up against bullies. Um and that kind of uh it, it just really does a tremendous job of underlining who Captain America is America is and what he stands for. Um that gives you a really great foundation for who I consider to be the co-lead of the Marvel Cinematic Universe alongside Tony Stark.
0: Yeah, I, I just feel like First Avenger, again, it's sort of easy to look back at these movies and be like, of, like and just kind of treat them as, you know, any other super, like, a, as if the Marvel Cinematic Universe was fully formed. But I really think that in order to appreciate what these movies did, you have to take into context – um When they were made and what the landscape was like at the time and what was considered difficult. And I don't and Captain America, again, very difficult. And I just think the the not just from a perspective from who he is as a character, but also in terms of his uniform. And the way the film cleverly changes his uniform throughout the film so that eventually you're like, oh, of course he would dress like that. <laughs> it's not yeah. an easy – like Iron Man, like he dresses like that because that's what the armor has to do. And, oh, Thor dresses like that because that's where he comes from. That's how people dress. Captain America is a lot harder <laughs> to be like, why <laughs> would you dress like that? And they make it work.
1: Although we didn't talk about the fact that they bleached Chris Hemsworth's beard blonde. That was unfortunate. <laughs> That was unfortunate. <laughs> Which Kevin Fuggy now admits was a mistake. And he talked about how ridiculous it was that they were like, but no, in the comics, he's blonde. His beard has to be blonde. Yeah, that's – that wasn't necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Do- doesn't work. But yeah, I agree. I think I think everything about the first Avenger is super clever and, and really well-constructed. And I, it's a movie that I feel people don't talk about a lot. I think it's one that would benefit from watching – I mean it, I feel like it's on FX – Every time a new Marvel movie is on, they're playing the Captain America. I, I
0: just picked it up on – it just hit – recently hit 4K, and I happily oh, I happily bought the 4K of it um, because I just think it, it deserves closer – not only because it's my favorite Marvel movie, but I just feel like it's a good-looking film. It's fun to watch. I just – it's a good adventure film uh, that really helps establish a really tough and important character in the overall series.
1: I may be wrong, but I believe this was the first Marvel movie they shot on digital. Um, because I know Tommy Lee Jones was interested in the cameras when he came on. So that something could, of note. Yeah, that could be it. Um, this and that, also gives us our first, um, recognizable theme of phase one.
0: That's true. Yeah. Marvel movies do not like I could like the, like Iron Man for me doesn't have a recognizable theme until Iron Man three. Yeah. Um, Thor, some people can recognize it. I never really can. Um, Captain America, very clearly
1: easy to recognize. You don't recognize the Incredible Hulk theme? He had a theme? <laughs> <There> <laughs> yeah, was a, no, that I, film had a score? <laughs> I think Iron Man, the first Iron Man by design, didn't have a theme because I think Thavra wanted it to be um, just rock music. Was right. kind of the, the soundtrack to Iron yeah. Man, so... But yeah, Alan Silvestri's theme – or his score for The First Avenger and his theme I think are – it's one of the few bright spots in in terms of uh, film music in the MCU, which is sadly uh, not filled with very many bright spots.
0: Although now it has an Oscar-winning composer. It I- does. Irony of ironies.
1: It does and very much worth uh, – it. Very deserved. deserving. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that.
0: All right. So let's close this episode out. We're going to talk about The Avengers. Um,
1: Marvel's The Avengers. You're going to confuse our audience with the Refine's Uma Thurman film.
0: Nope. <laughs> <I'm> not <laughs> going to say Marvel's The Avengers.
1: Guys, go seek out and watch The Avengers starring Uma Thurman and Refine. One of the biggest flops of 1998.
0: Um <laughs> So, uh The Avengers is the culmination of Phase 1. No one had ever attempted anything like this before. And I will be the first to say I was very wrong. I underestimated Joss Whedon. I was like, they're going to get Joss Whedon. I'm like, that's a pretty that's a big reach for a dude who's only done Serenity, which was not like the best-looking film of all time. Um like I mean I loved Firefly and Angel and Buffy. And I'm like the dude can write, but you're going to get him to direct as well? That that seems risky it paid off i mean the avengers what we didn't understand about the avengers is that it's not like yeah you need to have a good antagonist and you have that in loki but what makes this a different kind of movie and not just the x-men is that these characters are combustible they come from very different places they're not instantly going to get along even if the world is at stake this is about a team coming together and I just think I mean I have the first twenty minutes or so are still kind
1: of rough. I've never they're very rough. I can never and also from like reshoots. There's a there's quite a bit in that section of the film. the The audio commentary track on track on the Blu-ray is well worth listening to because Joss Whedon's like, yeah, this is from a reshoot because we realized this was a problem.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's kind of shaggy, but once once uh, Black Widow meets up with Hulk, the film starts humming along and yeah. it finds its rhythm.
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, And I really like the structure of it. I like the idea that it's not, you know, they have to work to assemble the team, and they put them together, and they bicker and bicker and bicker, and then they defeat the hero. I like that they assemble the team, they bicker and bicker and bicker, and then they split apart. And then the death of Coulson brings them together. Like, they are absolutely fractured. It's not like you know they put the team together and then they have to work through their differences, like they are not getting along and they do they do not want to get along and they're done until this inciting event forces them to come together,
0: yeah, and there are still some like save the cat things that are like, Oh, Loki
1: wanted to be captured, and uh like. This was the year that all of the villains uh, got captured on purpose. They got captured. They want to be there. Yeah. Because um, that year was the same year that the uh, Dark Knight Rises was released and Skyfall was released. And I feel like there was another one, too. Yeah, um,
0: But I feel like with – at least in the Avengers, it serves a purpose because it, Loki is such a fun character. And I feel like by having Loki go head-to-head against every Avenger – it sort of highlights their strengths and yeah. who they are and why they might have a chance of, of uh, going one-on-one against Loki, but at the same time, they need to be a team. It's, it, it's a film that's kind of – because that's the, that's the other aspect. How do you do a team when each character has already said, well, we're worthy of our own movie? What would why does Captain America need Iron Man's help? Why does Thor need the Hulk? You know, it it raises questions of why these people are together, and so the stakes have to matter, but also the character interactions are, are vital.
1: Yes, and we finally get the follow through on that just iconic cameo in Thor from Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye. <laughs> Jeremy.
0: Okay. Hey, Jeremy. Okay. So you're going to play this guy named Hawkeye. Um, what we need you to do is go, okay. you need to come down to New Mexico to the set of Thor. Uh, we're going to put you in a bucket. (laughs) We're going to put you in a little bucket in the sky and you're just going to aim this bow and you're going to say some lines and, uh, that is going to be your character. And Jeremy Renner did not respond with what?
1: (laughs) It's so ham-fisted in that movie where he's like, I'm starting to like this guy. Oh, it's, it's really rough. It's very rough. And then it gets done dirty in the event. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's not really until Age of Ultron that Hawkeye gets to, like, be a character.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say, I mean, it, I agree. I was um, – I did not have a lot of faith in this movie before, before it came out. Um, but I think Joss Whedon really nailed it, and I think that he nailed it where it counted – uh, especially when it came to Mark Ruffalo's Hulk, like they very specifically came into this movie saying they needed to get Hulk right because he hadn't been done right on the big screen uh, yet. And I think it's the best big screen iteration of Hulk we've ever seen. And and I love the approach to Bruce Banner in this film. Um, and Mark Ruffalo was perfect casting. I mean, it, I, I like him far better than Edward Norton,
0: even more than Eric Bana.
1: Yes. <laughs> Not more
0: than Nick Nolte, though. Um, no, I think, yeah, Mark Ruffalo is perfect casting because I think, you know, it gets into sort of the sort of the sadness and depression of Bruce Banner where there is that element of I don't want to be the Hulk. And instead of running from that or like being at cross purposes with it, they're like, OK, well, let's explore that a little. What does it mean? What? How do we, you know. How does this character come to terms with who he is? And you know, also the thing is, is when he's on the run, it's like, is he doing good? And like, yeah, he might like break up a fight or something, but this is like a film that recognizes like Bruce Banner is a scientist. Let him do science. Like, let him be a smart guy and be a like we need to draw clearer parallels between not parallels, but clearer conflicts between who, who is Bruce Banner and who is the Hulk. And I think it's just a very well-defined character so that when you get that moment of I'm always angry, it really hits you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And then I think uh, I think Whedon nails um, Black Widow as well, who <laughs> her introduction to Iron Man 2 was um, less than great. But I think her character is really compelling and interesting here. And I think that, I mean, Jeremy Renner gets done dirty, but I do like the idea that they set up that he and Natasha have this really strong bond.
0: Yeah, no, I I think, um, you know, Joss Whedon, no stranger to writing, you know, having, you know, done Buffy, um, he really makes Black Widow very interesting. And I think Scarlett Johansson, when she has good writing to work with, can really hit it out of the park. Uh, and so I think, yeah, that's the thing. There isn't really a weak link here in the cast.
1: No, And Tom Hiddleston is Loki spouting dialogue from Joss Whedon is just perfect chef's kiss. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's still a little bit of shagginess in terms of the filmmaking, I think. Um, but I really love the one shot in uh, the big finale and mostly, like, the action beats have really interesting uh, story beats in them. It's not just action for action's sake. Yeah. I kind of like um, the idea of what's going on. This was also in the wake of Man of Steel. And, like, there was, it, like, just hearing Cap... No,
0: no, it wasn't. Man of Steel didn't so? come out
1: until 2013. Oh, well, then what was the... So, so you have Cap, like, calling out, like, destruction. Like, you go here, we have to save the people... Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> was, it, was it just standing in contrast to Man of Steel, or was it just— It stood in I contrast. Basically,
0: Joss Whedon considered, like, oh, we have to protect people. And surprise, surprise, Zack Snyder did not really take that in consideration <laughs> when he made Man of Steel, which came out the following year.
1: For some reason, I thought it was a direct—like, um, mm-hmm. him directly rebuking uh, Man of Steel. But I was mistaken. My apologies to Zack Snyder.
0: No, in Age of Ultron, there's a direct rebuke to Man of Steel, where they're like, you know, Tony's like, by that building, is the building evacuated? Yeah, Yeah, that's That's right. That's the rebuke.
1: Um, yeah, I was thinking, I was mistaking, I was thinking of the moment when Cap uh, is telling the cops, like, what they need to do to save all the people, which I think is a really striking and and exciting moment, because it's about heroics, it's about, and it's also about, like, the Avengers come together and they have a game plan, and Tony is going to go and protect the perimeter and make sure that the damage is concerted to this one small area. Um, so I really like how much thought went into this big third act battle, and it's not just like, you know, things fly and they shoot them and then they win.
0: Yeah, no, there's real thought and weight and pacing, and it's very well written. It's It comes together very well. Um, but I also want to say, you know, again, going back to, like, what is this film at the time it's released? There are certain ideas that are clearly... I'll put it this way. I don't think they knew... I think they may have known that the Tesseract was an Infinity Stone at this point. I don't think they knew that the Scepter was an Infinity Stone. No. Because if they did... Then you have to explain, wait, so Thanos just gave Loki one of his infinity stones?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And then, like, Thanos is, like, to court that, like, the end is, like, to court, you know, to to fight them would to be to court death itself. And the reason that that, that, that line is there is because in the comics, Thanos is obsessed with death, who is a literal character. Um, and in the movies, they were like, no, we can't. We're not going to have him just be horny for death. We're going to be like, he, he's very passionate about overpopulation.
1: That's, that's Thanos's thing. Yeah. Yeah. These movies are made one at a time and the Thanos tag. Was yeah. There's Josh no, Biden's yeah. They, they, they
0: weren't planning for 2018 in 2011 when yeah. this film was shot.
1: And they have, I mean, they have a whiteboard and they have a whiteboard with ideas on it, and it may say, you know, Black Panther here, but they don't necessarily know what Infinity Stone is going to be in Black Panther, if any. And, you know, what villains are we going to have in Black Panther? They're not, I don't think they're thinking that far ahead or that um, granular with it because it allows for. uh, it allows the filmmakers to kind of um, improvise and kind of make the stories their own as much as they can um, when they get onto them and, and move stuff around. Uh, even Captain Marvel, like the Tesseract wasn't necessarily some big grand plan that it was going to be in Captain Marvel. It was um, just something that they, you know, they needed a MacGuffin and they were like, here's one that already exists. Let's use that. Right.
0: So, and it's fine that these films change. I think, you know, we'd like to believe like, Oh, You know, this, everything has, everything has been planned from the word go and they have a six year plan or a 10 year plan. And honestly, I don't find that as reassuring as some people do. Some people are like, I need to know. And it's like, there have been terrible shows that were canceled after one season. And they were like, we had a plan. We had a (laughs) 10 season plan. It's like, do I need to tell you about flash forward?
1: Um,
0: and what's more more about flash forward? (laughs) I won't. By Uh, David S. Goyer. Right. Um, What's more impressive to me is, like, you have enough structure that you have an idea of where you're going. But if things change, if you realize certain things aren't working or, you know, something works better than you thought it would, that you have the creativity and the flexibility to change directions. That, to me, is more impressive than we had a plan that we scoped 10 years worth and we stuck to it. I'm like, that's impressive, but also... Kind of. I mean, it's more reassuring that you had it, but not necessarily good just because you had a plan that you're stick to. There's no guarantee that that plan is good. It's just that it exists.
1: Yeah. And if you're sticking to it just because you plotted it out earlier and like if someone comes up with a better idea, you're like, well, no, that's not the plan. Even though that's a better idea, we're not going to do it because it's not the plan. Right. I think that's dumb.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, and obviously the Avengers was the biggest film, the biggest opening weekend of all time. 200, over 200 million on its opening weekend. Um, and it's a film that I think holds up really well. It's really fun to just have on in the background. It's, yeah. It's just a really enjoyable movie. Like there are some movies, like, like a film like Thor, like I can like appreciate it for what it is and what it does. But like I I genuinely enjoy rewatching the Avengers.
1: Yeah. No, I feel the same way. I think it's a movie that holds up uh, remarkably well. I mean, as we get into it, we'll get into kind of the more somber films and the darker films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, The stakes in The Avengers were big at the time. Um, Clearly, we've seen bigger. But I think in hindsight, that kind of makes it um, quaint in in an appealing way kind of like a delightful way like oh remember when right and it's kind of fun to just kind of go back when things were a little simpler when there were not you know as many heroes floating around and just kind of watch this team come together and watch uh, the interplay um the one glaring like thing that kind of pokes out is that thor is not quite the thor that we'd like now he's not thor ragnarok thor yet and so he's kind of a little um God ish, I guess
0: he's a little uh, too
1: Shakespeare in the Park. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, I guess so. Um, I'm thinking when he's saying like "you puny humans" or something like that. I don't know. Um, he's like, but, "I love you, humans. You're so tiny and puny. yeah, yeah, yeah."
0: Um,
1: but there are also some really great jokes, and I think this movie really shows uh, Chris Hemsworth's uh, comedic ability um, with the half brother line and everything like that. And then obviously, all the Loki stuff is just delightful. Yeah. Not, not half-brother. He's adopted. <laughs> it holds up. It really does hold up. You're right. And it's a movie that uh, – I kind of want to just watch the the two Avengers movies um, like out of context back-to-back back, and then go right into – or the three Avengers movies that exist now and then go right into Endgame and see kind of how that flows. I think yeah. That... Um,
0: so yeah. So that is the first six films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, ne- in our next episode, we will be discussing Iron Man 3, although not at length. If you want to hear us talk about Iron Go Long on Iron Man 3, there is a whole episode where we do just that. It's talking just about Iron Man 3, uh, which is delightful, and you should check it out. Yeah, uh, We'll also be talking about Thor The Dark World, Captain America The Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Avengers Age of Ultron. So definitely give that podcast a listen once we post it. Uh, okay, if you want to keep up with this, po- all the episodes of this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chipwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you for part two of our MCU retrospective.